out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the bass player. It is Graham Bailey, who was in... The Sound with Adrian Borland, but also um, another combo which was titled The Second Layer. But most interestingly, or even more interestingly, um, The Crazies, um, who were sort of a very short-lived band featuring members of The Outsiders, as well as the Honolulu Mountain Daffodils and The Sound. Um, This was a four-piece band which featured the likes of Adrian Borland, also Adrian Janes on drums and B. Marshland on clarinet and features the work of the one and only Pete Williams who brought together this session on an afternoon in 1978. Anyway, the album has now been released. It's titled A Simple Vision and it's come out on Optic Nerve Recordings all the way from Preston. Um, so yes, this is the interview. You're going to find out more about this whole experience um, and much, much more in the next 60 minutes. So look, sit back, relax and enjoy. Um, so after several minutes of chat with Graham, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Graham, take over now. I do remember it really clearly. It was, um, I would have been 14, so I was born a few years before you, 1958 to be precise. Um, it was my 14th birthday and Adrian bought me my first ever single and it was um, Jeepster by T-Rex. I mean, that's yeah. such a cool one. Yeah, and it's like my parents hated it because there's a dodgy word somewhere in there that could be taken as one word or another. So, you know, my par- parents weren't too happy me blurring it out in the bedroom. Yes. That was the first one. And then um, from that, uh, I remember the first concert I went to was Spirit. Um, Again, I was 14 and I went with Adrian and a guy called Steve Budd. And there was Randy California right there, right in front of us, like feet in front of us. It's like, wow. (laughs) It's like watching this guy go crazy. It's brilliant. So what year was the Spirit concert? Um, That would have been, that must have been 72. So they were at the height of their um, moment with 12 Dreams and um, yeah. and that kind of period. Because there was a Son of Spirit and Clear and various other ones that came out. But it was the 12 Dreams, wasn't it, which kind of blew us all away with uh, Nick yeah. Way. That's a I, good album. That's a great album. Still is to it every now and again. Yeah. Well, I became really obsessed with Spirit when I was younger for various reasons. And I sort of kind of got all these other kind of albums by them called The Spirit of 76. And... I don't know, there was there was a few other, oh, Potato Land, there was one they did a kind of weird comic thing called Potato Land, and then even the solo work of Randy California, who I thought was good. And I went to see him at the UEA thinking it was going to be a really packed audience in the 80s, and it was like 50 people, it was a bit depressing. <laughs> and then later on in life, I saw them supporting Wishbone Ash, and it was like, it was a bit heavy on the guitar solos all around. But then there was a weird moment that comes, which you shouldn't, shouldn't see, shouldn't really see this really. But he was in the audience, you know, during, during his set and the Wishbone Ash, and he was hustling people for T-shirts. And, and oh I was God. like, I said, actually, can I, can I get your signature? And he was like, do you want a T-shirt? I was like, not really, but I love your signature, Randy. Um, and, and then I thought, <laughs> oh, that was a bit tragic, really, wasn't it? He was like, have you got, you know, some money? Oh, like, so anyway, how the mighty. Anyway, Spirit are brilliant. So um, great band. So my, my, uh, my favourite band, like in that era, just after that, was Hawkwind. 
I saw them time and time again. I just absolutely loved Hawkwind. Specifically was, Lemmy. <laughs> I was, was going to say, was it the Lemmy period that you, you was you know, keen on? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was Lemmy that got me playing bass. I mean, I just like, I just watched the guy on stage. It's like, that's what I want to be. <laughs> God, well, that's brilliant. I mean, we all love Lemmy. You know, that was, I mean, for me, I always think people like Lemmy and David Bowie, you know, they just stuck with music from, you know, that age mm -hmm. right through to the end. You know, there was no plan B, was it? So, Absolutely. And his story with the Rock and Villa Vickers and then, Lemmy, you know, Hawkwind and then the beginning of the Motorhead is just legendary, really. So, um, I saw Motorhead's first gig. They were backing uh, Blue Oyster Cult at Hammersmith Odeon. Right. Um, they literally blew Blue Oyster Cult off stage. I mean, there was just no way that Blue Oyster Cult could come on after them. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. It was just so powerful and loud. I mean, it's like my ears were ringing for days afterwards. Yes. But yeah, that was Lemmy making his, uh, you know, putting his boot down. <laughs> God, that's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and then he did some very amazing other stuff with a band called the, the Headcats which was a kind of a rockabilly band, which was quite interesting, that featured members of the Rockettes, which, um, yeah, because he loved rock and roll, because his era was kind of Little Richard and right. Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and all those kind of cats. They, he was he's really obsessed with that. So, um, so when did you first get your bass guitar? Was that quite soon yeah. after seeing Hawkwind? Uh, well, my first guitar was a guitar. Um, but I couldn't play it. <laughs> I, got, I got confused with the too many strings and the strange tuning of the fifth string. And I actually, I built, I used to build uh, electronic gizmos to do things. And one of them was called an op octave, optivider. So I was actually able to like make it go, you know, get low notes out of the guitar. So I was kind of imitating a bass guitar using a six string guitar. And then it just sort of morphed into one thing and the other and Adrian's playing guitar and it's like, well, kind of need a, bass guitar with what we were doing this was second layer period before we were doing the sound yes um i just took to the bass and then i bought a bass and then never looked back <laughs> yes so did you and adrian is this which age because there's a lot of adrian Sorry, this, this is adrian borland the singer of the sound we right. grew up on the same street from nine years old we were best best friends for many many years right so, yeah we grew up together i mean he had different I mean, he was into Iggy and the Stooges from the get-go, and um, he kind of converted me over to them, at, you know, at some point. But we kind of always got together, and we're, I know we're just bored teenagers, and we love music, so we just end up playing music in his parents' living room. Yes, and, um, how everything started, all the weirdness and second layer, and you know, name it. Blimey, that's uh, so. So when you met him, was he always kind of really obsessed with music? Was he, you know, was he kind of one of those driven people who was, there was no, there was no sort of plan B. It was going to be music or nothing. He was driven. Um, Adrian was, um, he really had to be, I don't know, best at everything. He had a real desire to be best at everything. That was the younger Adrian before, you know, we were always doing like go-karts down the hill. And he had to win. and He often did win. And um but yeah, I mean, music came in, I think, both of our lives around about age 14. And it really would have been, I think, Spirit that kicked it off. The Spirit concert that just, you know, left us that impression and kind of that's what we want to do. <laughs> yes, because you would have been the perfect age for punk, I guess, wouldn't you? That would have been... Yeah, we, we were down there quite a few nights, you know, with The Clash and The Pistols and The Damned and well, you name it. We were down there quite often. 
Yeah, um, yeah I, I love that that time period. It was just like, yeah, brilliant, you know. But it's uh, not music I listen to now. I did back then. Loads no. of probably every punk rock single from 1977 through 79, I would think. Yeah. Did your, because well, um, were your parents kind of musical? Did they have a sort of, was it a bit of a vibe in the house? No, none at all. Actually, no, no musical in my family at all. Yes. Nor Adrian's family, so. Okay. <laughs> Because I kind of got the impression that Adrian sort of, he was, I think he was a single child. So he sort of uh-huh. had a bit more financial clout behind him sort of to be able to afford some of the kind of things that often are quite difficult to get hold of. Yeah, well, his first guitar, the Gibson SG, that was his birthday gift at age, I think, 15 or must have been, might have been 16. And that's the one he played all the way until the end. So Right. God damn. So what was your, what was the first band that you, you all sort of got involved in? We all, well, Adrian and I just did things together uh, quite a lot. And it wasn't with really any intention of being a band. It was just like messing around. And that's where the second layer came in. And then, um, you know, I really don't know how we ended up in the studio. I think it was uh, it was the sound initially. Um, and then Steve Budd, who's now quite something in the music industry, I believe. Um, he wanted it. He, he funded it, the first single, which would have been Physical World. And then we kind of took to like it working in the studio. And then I was then still working at the BBC, so I had some money. So I was funding some of the second layer material. Um, What was the original question? I've lost the thread, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Your first band. So was it the second layer was the first kind of outfit that you were were in and this was with Adrian? Yes, that would be that would have been the first thing that Adrian and I was doing together because he was doing the outsiders with Bob and um, Jan at the time. Yes, well, I think this is, this is, this is the thing that's slightly complicated. There were so many little bands going on before you know, the, the next period. There's, which was, there's more. <laughs> I know there's more that never we never recorded, but yeah. So with that, you did one album, though, didn't you? This is the second layer, with, which is titled World of Rubber. Well, the whole time, the, the, the band title and the album title was supposed to be one thing. It was supposed to be second layer's World of Rubber. Right. But, you couldn't do that because you've got to have a band name and an album name. So you can't have Second Layer's World of Rubber by, well, I guess it could have been Second Layer's World of Rubber by Second Layer. Yes. But, um, it's just supposed <laughs> to be a concept of that Second Layer's World of Rubber. And it was like obviously touching on the you know fetishistic thing that was kind of trendy at the time. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> it has to happen, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. But then the crazies go into the studio in December 78. So you're still, you're only like 21 at this stage, aren't you? So, yeah. so the crazy- It was so early, very early on. It was a very um, early on. And it sounds like pretty, like one of those kind of experimental afternoons. So how did that kind of session come about? Um, mostly, there was a group of us that used to hang out at the same pub. It was a crooked billet in Wimbledon. It's probably still there, I don't know. And we all used to be there pretty much every every evening, actually. Which we probably shouldn't have been, but we were. Um, and Pete Williams was in the band of people that were hanging around, and he really liked the same music as us. And he really he was a good singer. And he wanted to sing. And um, I don't know how it really came about. It was probably just like laughing around, joking in the pub, and then it got serious. And Pete came up with some lyrics that was based on current events. Some of them a bit. Um, unsettling events in the world at that time um 
And then we said, well, let's go in the studio and record these songs that you've got lyrics for. So there's no music. And so we end up with the concept that we thought, well, let's just go into the studio without any anything planned, nothing. We had no songs written, not even rough sketches, nothing. Just Pete had vocals, lyrics, not even the tune or anything. Yes. So the object, what we wanted to do is go in the studio in one day, make the songs, create the full recording, mix it down in one studio day. We didn't quite make it. <laughs> we had to go back later and do the mixes. We didn't get it to the mix stage, but we did everything else in one studio day. God, that was ambitious, wasn't it? It, it's just, it was a challenge. We wanted to set ourselves. We had no real preconceptions of anything, how it was going to sound, what it was going to be like. Oh, and then we learned out that uh, Nick Robbins, it was his first session at um, Elephant Studio. So there he is doing his first session and he's got us lot come in with no songs, going to record an album. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he was, he, actually it worked out real well. He came around pretty quick when he realised we were actually producing stuff pretty quickly. And so did you, it's all very rough. And at that stage, did you sort of feel that there was kind of a, a, a sort of an interesting creative dynamic with both individuals and the band itself that that was quite special? Because you hear these stories about, you know, Captain Beefheart with his kind of ability to pull people together. And it has a sort of a, an idea like that, you know, for me, it's just from an outsider's point of view that the band, you know, seemed to to have a lot of creative, you know, ability to do something quite interesting in one day. So we're all, we all had a lot of creativity, definitely. I mean, none of us have any musical training whatsoever, as far as I'm aware. I don't think I don't think I, I haven't. Certainly, Adrian hasn't. So we just definitely not. I don't consider myself a musician <laughs> in mm. that way. I'm a bassist or a keyboard player. I love playing music, but I'm not a musician. I would. My son is. He can read and write music. It's like, and he keeps trying to teach me music theory. It's like. And it just goes straight over my head. Yes. I don't want to learn it. I just want to play it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I kind of, I've done quite a few interviews with producers who often mention that there's quite a difference between the English or British musicians and the American ones because often they find that the, Brit the American ones are so good and they know the theory that sometimes it sort of stifles some like moment you think can we try and do something a bit different and they go no that won't work that won't whereas the British kind of musicians have no kind of ideas that so they'll have a go and then say, oh that that's a good idea so sometimes not knowing can be quite an advantage I think well it's ended up I mean I've only now found out due to my son being you know good with music that some of the uh, songs have got some strange tempos and time signatures <laughs> that I was just completely unaware of so Yes, absolutely. So then you record this album and it, then, you know, and also you had B, which is, um, she plays cl clarinet. Yeah, it's specifically a metal clarinet, which has a really um, abrasive but kind of beautiful sound. I know, I must admit, bringing in instruments like that is quite fantastic, actually, because um, it does give it a little bit more of a just, oh, this is just a rock, you know, this is a lot of guys just rocking out a bit for an afternoon. We just don't jamming, know, yeah. Just jamming, really. really. But there suddenly has a sort of sense of sort of mystery about it and a little bit more, I don't know, it's got a bit more textured about it. But then, decades later you know, it sort of appears on a, as a vinyl record. That That's kind of boggling. So where does the cassette, where does the recording live in all that period, by the way? And had you forgot about it a bit this kind of afternoon? Yeah. Well, really, yeah. I mean, um, it was Jan that just suddenly came up, why don't we release it? And it's like, well, I don't know, why didn't we release it? 
And the original idea, this is kind of an irony, the original idea, what it was going to be a cassette-only release, and we were just going to do it ourselves, literally, you know, duplicate our own tapes one by one and sell them. Um, we just never got the time because obviously we got, Adrian and I got busy with the sound. Yes. Uh, so it just went into the draw, really. Yes. And the irony now is that it's now released on vinyl when cassettes are now making a huge comeback. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk, that's an irony there, right there. Yes, I know. I can't believe cassettes are making a comeback. I can see why vinyl, because vinyl's got this kind of thing about it. And, you know. Oh, I love vinyl. I but, hate CD. <laughs> yeah, but a cassette is like, they, they make me slight, like, slightly tense because I've had so many go, oh my God, it's chewing it. Oh no, it's too late. It's gone. Shoot. I know. It's a valuable so, one. There, there is something quite delicate. Anyway, it's good that this stuff is coming back. I can see why. Yes. So then, yeah. So how did, how did, Optic Nerve become kind of involved in the process of, um, yes, finding a label to actually put this out. Oh yeah, where was the master cassettes or tapes living, by the way? Who had them? Um, well, actually they didn't use the master. Well, I've got the master one inch tapes from all our early recordings. I've still got them here. Right. Um, I've just had all the second layer transferred, so I'm planning on doing something with second layer. Um, the crazies, they took the original uh, mixed masters, which they found, which we just never used. Um, and then Nick Robbins, we got him involved again. Um, he took the tapes and baked them and then transferred them into a digital format and then tidied them up so that they sounded a little bit better. And that's where it came from, the original Mix Masters. And that happened. My God, that's so brilliant, isn't it, actually? And there's obviously because of um, the sound, you know, and then, you know, Cherry Reds put out all the other stuff from the outs. I keep getting it confused, doesn't it? It's the outsiders, not the outliners. Um, yes, it's, it's kind of interesting. That's something that 43 years ago has just suddenly become so sort of interesting as well. It's quite, it's quite amazing, actually. I just read a, a review or something. Is it Quiet Us or Quiet US? I don't know. It's oh, Quiet Us, yes, I've got you. And um, they, there's a review of the crazies, which, I mean, I, I would never in my life think somebody would write something quite that good about the crazies but it was it was quite fun to read that well i, I would imagine you know because you did you get much press at the time or did you get zero press for that the crazies nothing i mean nobody even knew about it <laughs> <laughs> this is true but then what happens to you later on then with it well as in the next kind of period because quite soon is this when the sound starts yeah well we, i mean we got the first album came out actually the first out first sound album there's a bit of a thing there um it was the least it's the least expensive album released on a major label since i think the beatles first album we actually produced the um first sound album Je jeopardy it cost less than a thousand pounds from the beginning to end. and we insisted that um Corovo, warner's Corovo was there in quote indie sort of label um, they agreed to release it as is, and it got like massive press, you know, good press. Then we got from the lion's mouth, which I don't really like that much, but everyone thinks it's the best album. Yeah, well, it was boring <laughs> for me. It was boring. It was just we're in this. Yeah, sorry. I was, I was going to say, because it's the, the four of you at this stage, it's still you, B, and Adrian, and then Mike, Mike, Michael Dudley appears as well. So, so did he sort of take over the, the sort of drumming role of, from the Crazies? And was that? No, the Crazies was Jan. Right. Um, so, and then Jan went to university 
it was still the outsiders. I joined the outsiders when Bob left to go to university. So it's then uh, Adrian Ball and Adrian James and myself as the outsiders. I need a Pete Frey um, diagram of this, don't I? Actually, this is quite, you know, the, the kind of intricacies of these couple of years and months is quite interesting, isn't it? <laughs> you know who would be best to get you? That would be Jack. He, he, <laughs> he's got everything. Uh, he's got everything written down. He was he's got a, it documented was, well. <laughs> well, you know, from his career, I mean, he he has to be. And, so yeah, he's he, he's the one to go to to get it all like in chronological order and correct. Yes, so the, that's that's it. So when you brought in the, when you became the sound, did it feel like a really tight gang, as they said? You know, when you when you're in a band, did this feel like you were on a mission at this stage? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's uh, and I don't really know what the mission was. I mean, we we de- never set out to be like. Well, actually, I think Dudley might have done a bit, but the rest of us, it was just, we just want to play music. And if we make a living from it, great. Um, so we weren't really looking ever to be anything big or famous or anything. That really wasn't our objective at all. Yes. And did you Never. have much, many record companies looking to sign you? Or, you know, was uh, it? So, no, that, that came about from, I can't remember who it was from Warner Brothers. They saw us play and they wanted to sign us for public, well, mostly Adrian for publishing. Um, but obviously some of us, the rest of us, well, mostly, I guess, other than Adrian, mostly me, you know, was also a co-writer for some of the songs. So the publishing deal would have been for the whole band. And then we said, well, you know, we want to, we'll take the publishing deal, but only if we get a record deal. So that's when we kind of pushed them into record, uh, signing us up to Corova. Yes. And that was it, really. And again, you worked in Elephant Studios, but the this the, the first album, you know, there are some songs on it like "I Can't Escape Myself." Did you, when you were recording that, think, "God, this is a little bit better than what we've been doing previously," or "This is a, a step up"? I don't know. I enjoy playing it. You know? Yeah, uh, I never really sat back and analysed anything. Uh, I, there were some songs that, well, I think, well, I did a quite a good baseline on that song. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't really I don't think I've ever really listened to our music after we've done it in the studio I don't oh, think I because the, 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 the reviews and press you got from other musicians decades later is quite extraordinary the person from Dead Can Dance said it's an existentialist post-punk jewel so that's really? quite I never knew that I never knew that <laughs> yeah no it's it's an, and, and Steve Sutherland from the Melody Maker said it's one of those records that makes me want to throw all the windows open and crank up the volume and blast it to the world. He, so, um, we really like Steve Sutherland. We just we got on actually got on with him. Um, you know, normally journalists can either be a bit of a pain or they can put you down like Paul Morley. I mean, he picked <laughs> us up for the first album then because everyone else seemed to like us as well. He decided he had to hate us. So, oh, him, Paul Morley, that's such Paul a Paul Morley and Julie Burchill, that pair, they're just a couple of poison, poison arrows. So, oh, yeah, yeah. They, they put us down soon after. Um, but Steve Sutherland, um, he showed up at quite a few gigs. We actually became quite friendly with him. Yeah. Not that it, we didn't, not to influence what he was writing. I mean, he was, he was really honest in what he wrote. So when he said things weren't that good, he, he was right. It wasn't that good. Yes, but then, um, because that that was kind of an interesting period, because you had the sort of punk period, which kind of quickly becomes kind of terrible, with some awful bands, and then the post-punk world of, you know, like uh, Magazine and Gang of Four and Public Image and the Nightingales as well, so there's some quite interesting stuff. So you come around in the early 80s, where 
you know, we got you two simple minds, I suppose, big country, but they hadn't been the kind of, I suppose, in a way, what I'm going for is 83, the year of the Smiths, when indie pop becomes this kind of, for five years, the indie <laughs> pop world. But you're kind of way before all that, aren't you, with, with the sound? Yeah, I guess so. I, did, I don't think we really did anything popish. I don't know, maybe we did. No, but you were definitely of the... Well, I suppose, you know, you would have gone, you weren't sort of, at that stage, there was a slight, you know, the goth scene and there was the new romantic world and the Blitz kids and all that London world. <laughs> but you were definitely more, you know, I, I, I don't know, a student college band and, in the, you know, somebody who would be, get played on John Peel more than Steve Wright in the afternoon, wouldn't you? Right, definitely. I yeah, we did thought. a couple of with John Peel. He was, he was, he was great. Real, I wouldn't. real top so so when you came to do the second album, which is literally the following year, your work rate must have been going through the roof at this stage, you know, like not only being in the band, but touring and then writing a new yeah. album. And then obviously with the second album, you also get a, another producer, which is the famous Hugh Jones. Jones. Yeah, I mean, he did a great, a wonderful job on the album, but it made it, I mean, for me, really boring. I mean, you just go in the studio, record your bass part, and just go and sit in this residential studio in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. Um, it was really boring. <laughs> For me, it was really boring. I mean, it's a lovely album, but it was really boring to record. Yeah, I can, I can tell you hate this. <laughs> but <the laughs> I don't hate it. It's got some great songs, but it's, what, what's missing, what's really, he's made it too smooth, in my opinion. Right. I mean, it, we were kind of more... Edgy's not really the word, but more not not so not so silky. It's too silky. Right. Okay. Does that make any sense? I don't know. It's, yeah, well, it can do. You know, there is. I suppose it's yeah. too. Sl it's too. There's smooth. no. There's nothing. There's nothing out of place. There's no mistakes. There's no something a little bit here or a little bit there. It's too perfect. Yes, that's Mine. what it is. It's, yeah, but how did you, because there was a fantastic documentary about Rockfield Studios kind of um, a year or so ago. I don't know if you watched it. Oh, really? It. No, yeah. I've not seen that either. Oh, do check it out. It's probably on the BBC somewhere, though you might not be able to get that from New York. But then just look for Rockfield film documentary about the okay. farmers and sure. all the bands that played there. Yeah. It will amuse you. So this is where they, you know, obviously did Bohemian Rhapsody, Black Sabbath, you know, the Stone Roses, though they hadn't even been born by then. That's, that's another favourite band of mine, Black Sabbath. Yes, day. well, God, I'm not surprised. So <laughs> what was your experience, apart from, did you find the whole being in the countryside boring as well, by the way? Yes, it was dull. <laughs> it was dull. But when you were recording Winning, okay, let's face it, that is one of the greatest songs of all time, isn't it? Did you think at that stage, this is pretty amazing? Because there's something quite electric yeah. about that song. Oh, definitely. When we were actually in the studio doing something, it was great. But the, most of the time, we were not in the studio, <laughs> or at least I wasn't. Um, you know, it's just Hugh Jones. He would, we'd go, we do lay down the backing track as a band, but then he'd have us go in and do our parts again. So, you know, so he gets the separation and everything. Um, and then it came down to the mix where none of us were invited except Adrian went in every, well, most of the time I think Adrian was there, but none of us could be involved in the mix. And it's like, well, that's what I like. I mean, I like working in the studio. That's my fun. <laughs> and you're yes. just taking my fun away from me. <laughs> right. God. You know? I mean, when we did Jeopardy and the second layer album, we're in uh, Elephant Studio with the, the late track studio. I mean, literally all three of us were on the board 
during, during the mixes to you know to adjust all the settings because one person couldn't possibly do all the changes um and that was like when it's really fun it's really challenging and enjoyable um so that, it's not like i don't dislike the album i just have a bad memory of the boredom <laughs> yes well i i think i remember john mcvee from fleetwood mac just had that expression of like, God, you know, it's so boring. Actually, people think this. And Charlie yeah. Watts had some amusing sort of comments, didn't he, about being in the Rolling Stones and how many, you know, years he worked, you know, compared to how many years uh -huh. he was in the band, which was probably very small, you know, probably just had to go and do his little bit and then just go home sure. again. So, but but during that first and second album, you changed one of the members of the band, B had gone and uh, Max had come in. Had that changed the dynamic as well at all, you know? Um, yeah, it, it definitely changed things. Um, I, I, I can't say better or worse. I mean, it was just a change. Um, I really can't go into all the details of how it came about because it wasn't really that wonderful. But um, yeah, Max joined. I mean, he was, it was actually, Max was lovely, but I really miss him a lot. But um, I don't know how you, how it changed. I mean, it was. I think we became more of a unit. Um, I think having a, a female in the group, especially it was my ex girlfriend um, at the you know, at the time, it was kind of a little bit awkward. Um, so yeah, I think we became more of a cohesive unit that you know gelled together at that point. Yes, God, the dynamics of being in the band, it's tricky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and the politics and the politics now, golly, <laughs> I don't want to know it. <laughs> yes, blimey. Well, I, I sort of haven't done this show for quite a while. You know, I found that, you know, most bands had this five year narrative, you know, you get together, honeymoon period, get the yeah. eventually John Peel session, good things. And then there was the, you know, first album, not bad. And then the tour in the second album, things going a bit tricky. Third album, things are going really bad. <laughs> well, okay, so the part of the, we didn't read the contract properly. I mean, golly, anyone who gets involved in the music, you know, if you're going to sign a contract, get it, get it looked at by a proper lawyer, because some of the terms in that contract were bad. One of them was we had to produce an album every year. Wow. That was a contractual, obli yeah, that was a contractual obligation. Um, this is what led to All Fall Down. <laughs> which um, actually is, I think it's my favorite album, I'm afraid by the sound. I know most people don't like it much, but I, I do like it. It was a lot of fun to record. It was when we were back in control again and we were doing the mixing and we were doing weird stuff in the studio, like bringing pieces of metal in which, you know, we're in the Banners studio, one of the most, I think it might've been the most expensive studio in London or in England, sorry, not London. Wow. Um, we, we start walking in with like 16 foot lengths of metal angle iron or angle aluminium that's used on glass and smoke, you can hear the noise. Um, and just doing, oh, and the, the, the drum machine came in. Now this is where a lot of people um, get it, don't really understand, well, what happened was that Adrian and I were still um, trying to do second layer. We had wanted to do a second album and we had songs written for second layer that we were wanting to do. Um, now we're under the gun with uh, Warners, now a WA, that put us onto the main label. Uh, to produce that third album in the third year. Well, we didn't have enough sound songs and we had some second layer material. Well, that's when we moved the second layer songs that we had for second layer, we moved those into the sound, which is why the drum machine came in. Right. And why songs are maybe a little, uh, a little edgy. <laughs> yeah, and there was also yeah. quite a lot of bands at that stage who were doing 
quite experimental stuff. You know, there was a lot more kind of, I, I just seem to remember seeing bits on, you know, like both on the John Peel show. And there was also Remember the Tube, which was also that mm -hmm. show, which we all loved. And um, yeah, it just, there was just a lot of people. I do remember seeing people sort of with angle grinders on stage at some stage. <laughs> I can't remember that which was, band. I think it was Zender Neubelten. Right, and the, you know, it's let, let, let's bring your metalwork, homework onto stage and perform it. I think that's a good idea. But yes, so, so there was definitely, was it a kind of a case of sort of, not desperation, but you've got to get something out that year as well as the fact that you're just wanting to be more creative? Um, for me, it was uh, really just wanting to be more creative and just doing something different. I mean, it was kind of, I guess, a lot of, uh, I guess Awful Down was a lot of my influence, probably. Um, if you look commercially, that's probably not a very good thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think as an album, I think it's probably our most interesting album. Um, Got it rock. Yes. And, but then WEA, they've had enough, haven't they? They just said no. So here, here's the story. We didn't do the album to flip off WEA. What we did do was after we'd finished recording it and we played it, um, well, they heard it. We were called in for a meeting for the, with the head of A&R. And we had a little talking to, oh, we met Frank Sinatra, by the way, passing Frank Sinatra as we went to do this meeting. He's, he's, a, he's a friendly bloke. He just said, you know, there we are, like kind of, I guess, a bit punkish looking, you know, leather jackets and stuff. And he's come walking the other way and everyone in the company is nervous. And he just said, hey, hey, lads, <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> it's like... Thanks to Sinatra. It's like, oh God, it's kind of cool. That would have been amazing, you know. Yeah, because you did just before that. You did one. You did one John Peel session, didn't you? In sort of was that eighty one? I don't recall. You probably have a better knowledge than I. I hadn't. Yeah. I hadn't got to the punchline. No, I hadn't got to the story. So there hmm. we are in WEA. They'd heard the uh, awful down. Yeah, and they said they needed us to make it more commercial. Well, we kind of. I guess it was Adrian and I at the meeting. And I mean, I know for both of us, we're both kind of rebellious kind of characters. So they're demanding we make the album more commercial. So we went back in the studio and we added that big pounding bass drum to We Could Go Far. And that was, that was it. <laughs> that was our concession to commercial. Right, there's a bass drum. <laughs> and that got kicked off the label. <laughs> Excellent. Although we, we'd really, we'd had enough. We weren't being promoted by them. and. Um, we weren't a good fit for you know, a major label. They'd moved us from there, like Carova, which was their pretend indie label. They moved us onto the major label, WEA proper, probably thinking we're going to now be the next whatever band at the time. Next yes. I mean, everyone well, we... wanted them. <laughs> and did you work with Flood as well, the famous Flood? At yes. That... Yeah, he's, he, was, he was fun. Actually, he was kind of, he was okay with all of the things we were doing. He didn't, it didn't phase him. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. Then, obviously, my, my la landmark in 80s pop was the Smiths, 83, with, which you probably went, God, I hate that sound. But that's fair enough, you were in a band. So um, I was just a young fan, so that was all good. So when you came to do Shock of Daylight, what was the atmosphere like with the band at that stage? I think we realized we needed to do something maybe a little more commercial. Um, and, 
and try and make it uh, get back what we sort of lost by doing something that people didn't really like that much. So I think there was more of an effort to make something a little more, uh, I hate to say it, commercial. So yeah, that was probably in there. Yes. Blimey, it's kind of a tricky one, isn't it? As, as, yeah. And, and would, were you sort of, as you know, a musician, were you changing much at that stage? Did you, were you sort of still in sort of in love with the bass and sort of where it could go with it, where you could go? So, well, actually, it's, yeah, that's how I ended up playing in, I don't think anybody's played bass the way I played it back then. It's really because I didn't know how to play. So I started playing using a pick because that's what I was using with the guitar. I, I never was able to play the bass like normal bass players play it. I can't do that. Um, I, I really, at the time, I really liked the sound of like, it's like that, what they call it, funk, jazz funk, where they, they slap the strings. I really liked the sound of that twanging on the slapping on the strings, but were I couldn't. You, were you trying to be, you weren't trying to be, was it Mark King? Who's that? From level 42, <laughs> remember the famous level? Oh, no, I don't know who it I've been, I would have heard, probably a certain ratio actually, I would think. Okay, that's more. Um, it's that it's that twang sound when you when you slap the string. It sounds like it's got a real twang. I really like that sound, um, but I don't like it when they pick the string and it makes that really horrible noise, thud kind of noise. So I found yeah. a way to like just hit the strings, and that's when I started you know, changing my bass style. I think yeah. the first one would have been Total Recall. It might have been Longest Days. Yes. But so that, that was, was like that was on the album. Um, Heads and heart, isn't it? The the sort yes. of yes. So what was because then you'd got onto another label, hadn't you? By this stage, uh, Static. You are Static. Static um, was sort of it was an Australian fellow called Laurie Dunn that ran the label. He was kind of under Virgin. I think he was sort of sort of under Virgin, but anyway, he soon went bankrupt, and that's where everything went very wrong. <laughs> oh, that's so, a, yeah. That's. And, um, I, it's still bad to this day. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's like who owns the rights and well, at the moment it seems to be somebody that's completely unconnected with the band that's just taken everything. So uh, those, yeah. the recordings of WEA are still available, but the ones that from Static are sort of... Got the a... Static era is, st is still, are still available on Demon Records and it's like a, it's a licensing deal that shouldn't be, but it is, but so it's just going to carry on. Um, that's so annoying that is it just... is but you know it is what it is I can't do much you know I've just got to accept it really <laughs> yes I know there you go so you got those two but then you, you actually the band are really going for it I, I, is it do you still I mean because most bands get quite, a, quite rackety don't they they get a bit frail around the edges how were you as a dynamic you know and sort of mentally spiritually physically getting <laughs> on at this stage because after oh. sort of you know a period of time most bands are sort of feeling a bit edgy um, I was just really living I, I love touring I love being on tour I like being in foreign countries where different food and different languages and everything I, I like that um, I'd really gone probably a bit far down the rock and roll rabbit hole. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, you know, it's the rock and roll cliche. And yes, it's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> but not everyone goes there. And, you know, Dudley was good. He always went to bed early. <laughs> right. So Dudley was, was he a bit older than the rest of you? Yeah, I don't know. Four or five years older, I think. Can be. Better. And how, how was Adrian coping being, you know, we can all see some kind of front singers 
um, kind of slightly getting a bit sort of odd around the edges, you know. Well, um, we, we, I am a Smith fan, for Christ's sake, you know. It's yeah, kind of... We went, um, <laughs> we did a lot, probably not too much clubbing. We, I mean, it's quite funny, really. It, there's the sound. We're supposed to be all serious and everything. Yet the three of us, certainly Max, Adrian and myself, I mean, every every chance to go out to a club after a gig, we were there, you know, we'd probably be up half the night. Yes, well, absolutely. Did you, I mean, because at this stage, you know, the 87 period is kind of another, you know, there was that change. There was a lot of bands that I loved during that period who had done their music and were feeling a bit like that's that's kind of it for us. We've kind of had it now. And then, you know, the, the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds are coming in and bands are thinking, mm. you know, they want their sort of new band and, you know, ecstasy hits, which obviously starts to influence a lot of that kind of sound. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> primal you know you suddenly get you know super dragons and primal scream and then you yeah. know, the happy mondays and uh yeah stone roses so obviously there's this like okay let's you know we've we, you know the eight, 83 you know you would imagine you know we'd had you know the falkland war we'd got the minor strike you know green and common it was all pretty grim and oh and you know a lot of bands i've interviewed you know were unemployed during that period and were on job seekers lands and enterprise alliance schemes and it was all really like you know you had bands like stump and Bogshed and Big Flame and you know I haven't heard of any of these <laughs> all these kind of indie bands that especially you know like we've got on the C eighty six cassette and um, you know they they've kind of got a quality but then things seem to start to open out by the late eighties I just wondered how that was changing the set, the way you were feeling about music as mainly because you're in the band yourself uh, I don't think I mean I wasn't really aware of any other bands I mean I, I hadn't been to uh, like a live gig other than ours for years by then. Right. Uh, I really wasn't aware of many other bands. Um, I can't really think of any bands. Of the, the only band I can think of at the moment, is the only one I still listen to is Propaganda. Right. We love them on ZCT, even though there's a Morley connection, isn't there? <laughs> is there? Yeah, he, he kind of runs the label or he does the PR for them. He's the mastermind oh, really? behind um, ZTT Records. Huh. I don't know, you'll have to have a think about that. Anyway, he's just done a book on Manchester, so you can buy that for Christmas and stab <laughs> it, burn it. No, don't That's The funny thing is, Manchester's love, the people in Manchester are so friendly. I mean, every time we were up in Manchester, it was like, there was no issue being from London. You go to Liverpool, it's like, oh yeah, from London. It's like, you know. I mean, were you, were you still a sort of force on the live circuit? Because we, we, there's this kind of, you know, we had the kind of gatekeepers in the 80s and then probably the 90s as well. And God knows what happens now. You'll have to be on TikTok, I guess. But those days, you know, we had three weekly music papers which had a huge circulation. You know, we yeah. had John Peel who had this kind of amazing show. Plus there's Janice Long, Kid Jensen. And every city mm -hmm. and town in, in the UK, you know, has an alternative indie night. So, you, you know, bands mm -hmm. could at least play outside their sort of normal environment or basically friends family and anybody else they can blackmail to yeah. see them emotionally but then you <laughs> could sort of go and play all these kind of little clubs around the place like the Norwich Arts Centre or the I don't know Duchess of York the Princess Charlotte in Leicester and all these kind of places so did you pick up a kind of an audience beyond the that into the university kind of crowd at all? Uh, we, we never really concentrated on playing in UK other than London so it's um, so it's mostly Europe you were going. Yeah, for some reason, when we first started playing in Europe, we started in Holland. It's it almost it seemed like we already had like a huge fan base out of nowhere. 
Um, so we always look forward to playing in Holland. Yes. And why, did but, yeah, you understand but, why you were particularly big in Holland and Belgium? Never figure it out. I have yes. no idea. I mean, right at the beginning, we were, we were having bigger audiences than even you two at the very beginning in Holland. Yeah. In Holland only. <laughs> It's interesting. There's a band called the X from Holland, which were one of these anarcho punk bands. But um, yeah, wow. it's kind of a quite an energy. What about Berlin? Did you play Berlin at all? Twice. Yeah, that was interesting. Very <laughs> interesting. I mean, that was both before the uh, Berlin Wall came down. Yes. Was that uh, the, the Metropolitan that you played? Or Yeah, that Metropole. Metropole. Yes. Did the German audience love you? Um, yeah, we had a good. Yeah, we had a good time in Germany. Yeah. So, <laughs> most of Europe. I mean, uh, yeah, most of Europe, really. It was it was good. Mm. Then you were on Play It Again, Sam, weren't you? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, Christ, is that even worse than Static? It's worse. Oh, they shoot. actually, their, their contract, you'll love it. So for every uh, record they produce, we ended up owing them more money because the costs of production exceeded... Um, what would you call it? Basically, every record they sold, we owed them more. It was some totally dodgy contract, so we never saw a penny out of it, anything we did with them, or at least I didn't. Mikey, that is not good, is it? Yeah, it didn't help, you know, the mood. And, of course, Adrian's going pretty downhill by then. Um, yes. In fact, he, was, he was struggling in the studio by now uh, to get through. Yeah. It was a tough to make. It's, it's definitely a painful album to listen to, I think. No, well, that would be hideous. Did you ever have management? Did you get any kind of help or advice from, you know, anybody from this period? Well, no, this is probably where we went wrong too. I mean, we decided we we're going to manage ourselves because we didn't trust anybody. And you know, looking back, we probably should have had a, a decent management company behind us. We tried to self-manage and it probably didn't work out the best. <laughs> yes, my God. So when Thunder Up, which was on that label, went out, came out, was it just kind of a, a sort of a bit of a soulless period for you as a as a band? I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, I was on a downward spiral in a way. And Adrian, I mean, not in the same way as Adrian. Adrian was obviously really beginning to suffer from uh, the illness. And uh, it was a tough period. And it was obvious that it wasn't going to last. Um, so when it happened, it was just, it was inevitable, really. Yes. Guys, that's horrible, actually, isn't it? That's just not good. Yeah. Did you have a moment where the band, you sort of officially finished it, or did it just kind of, you stop just seeing so, each other? So, in the last concert we played in Holland, I can't remember the name of the town, it was a small town, and um, we're about a third of the way through the set, and we're playing winning, and then Adrian just couldn't, play anymore he just stopped and walked off stage so we just that was it we just stopped um Dudley decided to leave the group um which he did we tried to audition a couple of drummers um we found one I can't remember who it was we found one that we were thinking we might go with and then Adrian came up and he says you know how about you starting to play acoustic bass and he was serious it's like uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in playing acoustic bass or stand-up bass. I like, I mean, I like rock and roll. You know, I like, like it being loud. <laughs> yes. So that's you when weren't, weren't going to be the next. Was it Danny Thomas Thompson? Whoever, 
Is that who that is? <laughs> no, it's just Max and Adrian left. I think Max and Adrian did a few demos together. Um, and then it just kind of stopped. And then Max got his own band together for a while. Um, I just completely quit everything. I, in fact, it's just really, it's just this year I've actually picked up instruments again. After like 30 something years, I'm actually making music again. <laughs> My God, that's, um, that's quite amazing. Though I'm saying that, actually, I've sort of come across quite a lot of people who went, that's it. I'm not doing, I'm just going to get rid of it. Did uh, what, actually, I don't know what happened to Max. Did he, was he also somebody who, who kind of died recently? No, he went in, I think it was 94. Um, from a uh, uh, complication with AIDS. Right. So, okay. Yeah, Christ, that's sad. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. He, he was, he'd become a really good friend by that time too. We worked yeah. together at the same lighting company and we spent a lot of time. I mean, he was mostly going to the kind of the gay clubs and I went along with him and it was like, but we just hung out together. Yeah. God. No, that's, good, good, um... A real good friend he was. He became more of a friend than probably Adrian by that time. Yeah. Bloody hell. It's never easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the easiest gig, is it, really? But then in 2000, just jumping slightly, 2004, the BBC recordings come out, which is the John Peel session and various ones you did with Mike Reed, bizarrely, which is yeah. um, quite from 19, yeah, 1980, October, and then John Peel the following November. So um, that must have been a bit of a bright spot in, in life. Oh, definitely. Um, it was like, after all these years, people want to listen to our music again. It's kind of pretty cool actually <laughs> i mean i'm I, it's great i'm happy that they you know people still like it yes because on the all recording sessions you had the famous dale griffith who was the i think he was the drummer with mott the hoople but also you had it did tony wilson the factory records chap did he <laughs> produce some as well no fair enough um we 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 actually approached him at a joy division concert and he, he just wouldn't talk to us <laughs> Jesus, that's so rude. That's terrible. He shouldn't have done that, should he? He could be just polite. No, never. Oh, he was probably busy. I, I mean, I'm not saying it was because we were Londoners. It was, he was probably busy you know, organising. It was a, a concert with, uh, it was a factory showcase. It wasn't his Joy Division. It was all the factory bands on stage. Right. He was too busy with his whistle. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. So then, I mean, so is it 88 that is the year that you you part company with the band and yeah. also music as well. Can you remember the last time you played your bass at that period? Was Well, actually I, I did. Um, I started playing or trying to play with another band called the Rhythm Slaves. Um, I, I don't recall how I found them or they found me. They were looking for a bass player and I thought I'd give it a go. Now they were more into like the kind of rockabilly thing. Mm. Here I come along with my like Lemmy style bass playing and it didn't really fit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought yes. it did. I thought we did a brilliant uh, version of um, Boots from the Nancy Sinatra song. Yeah, I mean, like it was like ultra heavy bass with like the jingly jangly guitar. I thought it sounded great, but no, he didn't. Mark didn't like it, so that was it. They just you then I moved to America. <laughs> and here I so am. Was that in the early nineties? You moved to America. Yeah, ninety one. So did it, did it feel when you moved like? you know this was your previous life that you just kind of had yes. slightly buried a bit yep it did it was good it no more drugs and you know married with a kid and just doing all the you know the normal 
normal things. <laughs> yeah, God, that's that's quite something. How did you manage to sort of, was it a relationship that managed to get you a sort of um, a, a trip to, was it a New York you went to? <laughs> no, actually New Orleans, Mardi Gras. Right. And I had a, it was a, a friend that I had known for several years and she was just moved to New Orleans and she called me up. We kept in contact and we spoke on the phone. It was like raining in November, you know what it's like miserable oh. cold you know and she's like hey it's great over here you got to come down so it's like i went went down there in uh january of 90 january of 90 91 um fell in love with the place and uh i met a young lady who became my wife and fortunately she's no longer with us and i've since remarried another louisiana girl who i've been with for now 20 something years, almost 20 years Wow, God. That's so life is good. <laughs> life is good. But life then obviously, just going slightly back there, I mean, in the late 90s, you know, Adrian dies, doesn't he? Which did that, I mean, at that stage, did you feel kind of like strange about it? I mean, in the sense was, of, you know, it, like... Well, it, was, it was a really strange thing because we had a, a big fallout um, about 94, I think it was 94. Um, he'd released, he'd got our records re-released and hadn't even told me about it. So we had a big fallout and um, didn't have any communication. And yeah, it was, it, it hurt a lot when I heard he'd gone because he'd been such a good friend for so many years. Yes. But we never, I never got, we never got, had a chance to kind of make up or just, you know, speak civilly again. Um, yeah, it was painful. God, it must have been horrendous to hear that story, uh, hear that news, actually. And how he went, it was like, oh, it's just, it's just dreadful. Oh, yeah. then we moved to England for a while. Um, in 07, we went back for a few years. And we actually met one of the firemen that were on duty uh, on that day. And, uh, yeah, he explained a little bit why he had to do it. It wasn't nice. <laughs> Yeah, I know. God, it was. Um, did you ever sort of meet Adrian's <clears throat> parents again? You know, before, yeah, you know, during that time, because I guess his parents uh, were still alive. No, it, it, our fallout was pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> so mm. yeah, I didn't. His, you know, his his parents didn't want to talk to me, and I didn't particularly want to talk to them. Right. Well, yeah. No. Well, God. We got the um, you know Adrian's share of the rights, so we had to keep a civil communication. But that was yes. it. Yeah, Jesus. It's a complicated world, isn't it? Fucking hell. It is. It's but there's so much great music around these days. It's like it's blowing me away. I mean, this year, honestly, I've just found so many incredible bands. It's just like, just happening all over again. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, you know, it seems like quite an amazing bit. Because I think, is it the case that Mike Dudley, he, he still sort of plays a, a band that does the sort of the sound, doesn't he? Yeah. Is that is that a tricky subject? That's that's his thing. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I, I, just, I mean, okay, I just it seems a bit weird to me. That's all. I mean, he was the drummer in the sound. No, I don't really want to go anymore. About no, that. that's fine. Don't no, it's, don't. He's I doing don't. his thing. I'm doing my thing. You know, it's whatever floats your boat. You know, that's what he wants to do. 
No, that's absolutely right. No, because, yeah, life's complicated. And Jesus, I've heard a lot of complicated stories doing this. So, yeah, don't worry. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, that's well, right. <laughs> the good thing is optic nerve has got the crazies out and that that must feel mm -hmm. quite an amazing sort of answer i'm blown away i mean that's i was totally chuffed and actually got the record it's like i can't believe that after 40 years yeah here it is i mean something we never even thought was going to happen i know i bet your your um child is a daughter or son you've got i have two sons and two daughters they must be like a bit like okay you you weren't telling us porky were you you really were in a band <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so i've got my my youngest my older son he's not interested in music at all um he's 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 basically a, a tree surgeon now um my older daughter she's an artist she's incredibly talented with art pictures um my younger son he is an exceedingly talented pian pianist um he you know he composes and reads and writes and all that and knows ever just about everything about how to music i mean knows all music theory yeah and um, my other daughter wants to sing and she's got a great voice and she shares the same taste in music as me which is a bit weird having to say you know being 60 what am i 60 i'm old am i 64 and she's um at, at almost 18 we like the same music <laughs> <laughs> that's quite fantastic actually that's quite nice so is it the case then that you've you know picked up your bass again and started thinking actually this is feel quite liberated playing music i'm more interested in electronic music but um i tried i, I did i've actually fixed the bass up again so it's usable but then i tried picking it up and it's just it's, it's the sound so um, put it away again. Uh, I've actually ordered another bass, which I'm going to get in January. And when I get that bass, because it's a bit fancy, it's a five-string bass. Um, I'll see what happens. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing if I can still play or not. <laughs> yes. So, do you? <clears throat> I mean, on that side, do you ever sort of watch any of those clips on YouTube of the of the sound thing, or do you just kind of avoid that as well? No, but YouTube has been finding me all these amazing bands. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so I just you know, I put YouTube on. Actually, I've actually turned on the tracking, so it tracks me, so I get introduced to new bands. Yeah, and I think the first one I found, absolutely really brilliant, Meg Myers. I found her at the beginning of the year. Yeah, have you heard of Meg Myers? No, but I will try and... Oh, she's, um, she's kind of got a bit um, off the rails now, but she had uh, the first album, Sorry, is absolutely incredible. And if you go on YouTube, actually, there's a Lollapalooza from 2014. That's the first thing I saw. It was, it's the same kind of intensity that Ian Curtis had on stage. Right. Really intense. Nick. But it's got to be done. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll have a look at that. So look, if you were to sort of be able to say something to your, like, a 16 or 18-year-old self starting out, and you thought, crikey, with your, the wisdom and experiences you've had, is there anything you'd have kind of whispered in their ear just to help them guide? Or you might have said, no, I just said, look, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. Or no, you'd have gone. I would, I would definitely um, make sure if you're going to sign a contract, you know exactly what's in it. And that's not from you reading it, that's from somebody who knows what they're reading, which would be a, a music business lawyer or solicitor. Um, that money is going to be well worth spending in the beginning. Yes. Get a, a good manager, get a publisher, then worry about the record deal. Yes, this is true. And don't worry about what the press say. Yeah, <laughs> Ignore that's the press. What 
well, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's very good. I, I, I remember Barney, he was the lead singer of Napalm Death. He, I think he joined the union. He said it was just the best thing he could do, the music union. And um, they yeah. just tell you what you're supposed to do and not do and um, give you some pointers, signal you in the right direction. And I thought that was the most sensible thing that I've ever heard someone say. So there you go. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good one. And um, is it the case then that you, you occasionally get, as most people do, like a £14 or £15, um, you know, royalty check occasionally? You think, <laughs> this is amazing. I can't believe it. Or is it not quite even, even on that level at the moment? Uh, I don't know. I, I think, well, I only get a royalty statement from Warner Brothers and the albums aren't out at the moment. So it's just from um, digital rights. It's not much. <laughs> um, I mean, if I actually go through and think how much money have I actually... There was a period, okay, from the, when we got the, royal, uh, the uh, advance for, from the lion's mouth, it was a period of one year where we were actually living off music. So we didn't have to work and we didn't have to go on the dole and, you know, we could actually live off what we were doing for one year. That was, that was a good year. That was really our goal was to, or certainly mine, was to be able to just make a living. I don't want to be rich. I, mean, yes. I wouldn't mind being rich but i just want to be if i could make a living doing something i really love that was the most important thing and yeah. just having a, a life but it's all good now <laughs> yeah no it's great and I'm, I'm pleased that you've got so much material kind of out there that's um you know it's kind of i suppose in a way i love archiving now don't i that's the thing that's cool. <laughs> and it's great that the music is, is isn't going to just get lost in some sort of skip somewhere so i think it's fantastic and yeehaw that the crazy's got the record out it'll be brilliant i don't know how many copies they print up or press a thousand a thousand a it's thousand cool. of which um let me see 20 would have gone to the um four artists <laughs> so <laughs> that leaves them what nine thousand uh, uh, 980 to sell right well we'll see actually they've built up such a following actually i think they'll probably do okay there'll be people around the world you know people sort of quickly latch onto this don't they what we wanted to do i mean it was just trying to be a bit funny it kind of worked out it didn't quite work out the way we wanted it um i said well we can we have this done in gold that we'd like to have because we never had any records that really got anywhere oh except new um new zealand uh, right. from the line mouth got in the charts in new zealand um, but didn't, we didn't get one of those fancy records, you know, gold or whatever they come. So I said, can we have it in gold? And he was actually looking at doing it. In the end, we had to settle for like a kind of a gold vinyl, but it's got like um, sparkly bits in it. So it looks a bit goldish. It looks like tacky gold. <laughs> Fantastic. It does say it's pressed on special colour vinyl. Yeah, it's um, a special tacky gold. <laughs> yes. And has it just been nice to sort of connect again with Adrian? Yeah. Absolutely. And also be. And by. Fine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, we, I mean, as I said, we were, I mean, girlfriend, boyfriend for about a year or so, but that was many, many years ago before the bands really went anywhere. So we haven't been in contact at all, but since um, Jan got this all going, I and mean, we've been actually chit chatting on email you know, about things, it's kind of cool being back in contact. Yeah, definitely. God, that's actually, fantastic. Actually, if, I, if I'm, I'm going to, I'm planning on doing new second layer stuff. I mean, that's my thing. And um, I asked her if she wanted to do some clarinet, and she's interested. So, and she's got logic over there too. So, she might actually make a comeback on some second layer material to come up. Fantastic. We'll see. In the case that the second layer, did you say at the beginning, or roughly, <laughs> that, that you're going to sort of bring out some new material, or just? I'm hoping to. I'm working on it. 
I'm learning how to use Logic Pro at the moment. I'm getting there, um, and I've got to learn how to sync up all the instruments, which is a bit challenging. Yeah, but you've got children. They can do that sort of thing, can't they? They're not interested. Uh, they want to play video games. <laughs> <laughs> if only they could just put it into the music. That would have been so Exactly. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Diddling around, aren't they, kids? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look, thank you ever so much for giving me yeah, the time for this. This is pleasure. And if you want, I can always um, send you a link, and then you can always. Please do. Yeah. I don't know if you've got some sort of um, page for the the band or some. Actually, I've got a I've got a Facebook group that I've now I started this last year. This is how it's all come together all in one year. So there is a Facebook group. I mean, anyone's welcome. It's a private group, just because I want to keep it private. Um, at the moment, it's called the Sound Second Layer and the Crazies. <laughs> Okay. And um, I've been I've been kind of recounting some stories from you know the sound years and the crazies and second layer. Fantastic! It's like an informal group, so yeah. If you want to, anyone wants to join or you want to join, feel free. It's just a little chit chat. It's quite a nice group, and the great thing about it is, and this is what's I think actually brilliant, and this is where I think we as a a civilization and perhaps as musicians. I'm not really a musician, but anyway, people who play music. We need to start trying to bring people together. And the great thing about this group is, I know because I see their profiles, I've got people who are, I mean, over there it's Conservative and Labour, over here it's Democrat and Republican. They're on both sides of the fence and they're hardcore each, either way. But they're discussing and talking to each other in a perfectly civil manner. They don't know that they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. I do. So this is bringing people together. And this is something, you know, I think music should, needs to do is they need, you need to get out of politics. I mean, Bono mouthing is off about stuff about, you know, politics and this, that and the other. It's like, just bring us together. Let's just say they're all, they're them. Let's just bring us together as a people. It doesn't matter what party you support. I mean, over here, I know about over there, over here you've got family members disowning other family members over politics. Seriously, that's tragedy. <laughs> God, I think, yeah, I don't know. I think we've just kind of... It's gone, it's gone too far. We, didn't, we need to unite and just, we can find, this is the great thing, music can unite people. Yes, I think... I, I found think... that with this group, it's been really kind of therapeutic to me, you know, oh, to see that both good. sides of we, we, need, we need a bit of harmony, don't we? Yeah, Holistic love brought together by yeah. the power of music. That's what... Yeah, I know, no. It's true. No, I, I agree. It's. I think that's why we've all been. I mean, the UK is kind of strange, really, because we sort of the COVID thing just seems to, have, you know, people just completely have forgot about it and have just kind of desperate yeah. to get back out to live gigs and music again. So um, it's strange. So too. we're lucky around here, being in the in rural Tennessee. I mean, nothing really, nothing really changed that much. <laughs> um, actually, there was a bit of fun right at the beginning. Um, you know, we, we took it seriously too. There's nothing on the road. Everything is closed. And then the sheriff announced that they're not going to be giving out speeding tickets. Um, okay. <laughs> I had fun for a while. <laughs> yes, I would imagine that was a little bit of a... Empty roads and no threat of speeding tickets. <laughs> God, did they have to quickly say, look, actually, that was, um, I was getting a bit carried away that day. I think we better come back a bit quicker. There must have been a lot of, there must have been a lot of boy races during that period. It was, uh, it was, it was fun for a month. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Gosh, anyway. Right. Well, look, thank you ever so much. Yeah, and, brilliant. Um, yeah, look, have a lovely evening. And, thank uh, you. Take care. And I'll keep in touch. But anyway, thanks a lot. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.
And that, dear listener, is how you end a phone call very brisk. Anyway, I love leaving that in because it's very fumbly and um, I always sound very sort of hesitant, which is my go-to personal state. Um, Look, a massive thank you again to Graham Bailey for giving me the time for that interview, talking about the crazies. A Simple Vision album that has just come out on Optic Nerve Recordings all the way from Preston. And um, obviously you've heard the interview, so lots of chat about this, that and the other. Look... If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, frankly, why did you listen? And also, all these interviews have been archived and they're on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.